And so over the past several weeks, we've been looking at the qualities of exploration. And even in these past few weeks, really coming to this dramatic revelation, even for myself per, like personally, that the deepest revelation, the deepest exploration that we can go as Christians is into the very center of our faith. You know, we talked about sometimes there's exploration that takes us into new territory, the uncharted thing, the, the unknown place. But a lot of times the exploration that God calls us to is to deep into the thing that we feel like we've always known since the beginning. And we find that in Paul when he says, we preach, we pretend nothing to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Because for him, Christ and him crucified was not some sort of a conclusion that he had come to, a conversation that had somehow ended so that he could get onto the really interesting stuff. Christ crucified was the center of his faith. And Paul recognized that every time he turned towards the cross, there was something new to perceive, something new to discover. And it's so beautiful because we're culminating this series today with these sacred acts that Christ himself has offered us in terms of dedicating children as part of the family, in terms of coming around the, the Lord's table. Um, sometimes we call it the Eucharist. Sometimes we call it communion, depending on your tradition. Um, and encountering Christ there, and then, of course, baptism and rededication, where we take upon ourselves this strange act that marks us as part of the family of God. And so I wanted to begin with that poem uh, by John Donne, who was a 16th century poet and Anglican priest in England. Um, and I love that the, the poem itself is called Death Be Not Proud. Death Be Not Proud. I want that to kind of be uh, the title for my own message this evening, and I want to read that, that last two lines to you again. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. And so we're going to talk about death tonight, everybody's favorite subject in the whole entire world. So where do we need to start in examining what exactly death is and what Christ has to say about it? I want to begin here. Sin and death have been on the throne over us for far too long. Can I get an old school Pentecostal amen? amen. All right, let's try it again, because I'm an amen guy, but we'll try it again. Sin and death have been on the throne over us for far too long. Okay. There's a major problem with sin and death in this world. I don't know if you've noticed, but things don't feel quite the way they should. You're, maybe it's in your personal life. Maybe it's globally things don't quite feel like they are the way they are. And it's very interesting even for us that we recognize that. There's, there's something deep within us, within our souls, that cries out. Maybe we don't know how to name it, but we know it's not right. We look at death almost as a sort of injustice. We look at sin, and sometimes, you know, in the church, we over-spiritualize the idea of sin, but we can essentially break sin down into two things. Either it's idolatry or it's injustice. That sin is out of the wrong relationship with God, or, and injustice is a wrong relationship with our fellow humanity, but there's something within us that recognizes this is not the way things are supposed to be. And what we've identified in our Bold Exploration series is that perhaps that little twitch deep within our souls is the thing that has been written on us by God that spurs us into Bold Exploration. It's the impetus that makes us move forward in our lives and begin to ask the right questions. 
It's the kernel of sand that finds its way into the oyster's mouth and the irritation begins the process of creating the pearl. But we begin that, that part of our journey, our journey in recognizing, I don't think this is the way things are supposed to be because it seems like we're under charge of something entirely different than God. And so sin, whether it's idolatry and injustice, produce in us death. And how do we define death? I want to define death as the ultimate separation from God. That if you have breath in your lungs, and I assume most of you do, or else you wouldn't have arrived here this evening, but if you have breath in your lungs, in some way you have connection with God. In some way you find your source in Him as the creator of all, whether you recognize it as such or not. But when we're talking about idolatry, what we're talking about is when we find the source of our identity in something other than the creator God. And maybe that's another person. Maybe that's a relationship. Maybe that's a career. Maybe it's a dream. Maybe it's an idea or a concept, a way that helps you understand what the world is. But we understand that idolatry is when we begin to find our source in something other than creator God. And if that's what idolatry is, then injustice is when we begin to demean human beings around us because we perceive them less than the way that God does. And so you can see that idolatry and injustice go hand in hand, that when you and I have broken relationship with God, that we have misconstrued ideas of who he is, it taints the way that we see other human beings. And the problem is that one influences the other. Idolatry influences injustice, which influences idolatry. And so many of us have terrible understandings of what God is like because of what we've witnessed in the space of injustice whether it's something that we've done or something that we've observed in other human beings. How many of you have seen other people that purport to be Christians do some pretty terrible things and you're like, if that's what this is about and that's the representation of God, I don't know if I want to have much to do with that. You know? So idolatry and injustice feed into one another and it's this cycle of continual violence that ultimately leads to the perpetuation of death. Because it's ultimately human beings trying to come up with solutions for human problems. But ultimately, whether it's in idolatry or injustice, we continue to fall short of God's vision of how we're able to have relationship with him, of who he's created us to be and what he's created us to do. I think this is the Genesis narrative. This is what we see in the very beginning. Adam and Eve have this complete intimacy with God. There's no separation. There's this absolutely pure relationship with God. But because they hear these lies from the serpent, they begin to believe we can become like God. We don't have to find our source in him. We can unplug from relationship with him, and we can find it within ourselves, that we can have enough wisdom. We can have enough knowledge that we can determine our own destiny. And it's God's brokenheartedness when he comes to them and discovers that they've disconnected from relationship with him. And you can almost hear the pain in God's heart when he says, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were lacking something? Because when you're with me, you lack nothing. And we see in the very next generation, Adam and Eve have two little boys, Cain and Abel. And because of jealousy, Cain kills Abel. In one generation, we see jealousy, discord among, in a family, and violence that leads to death. 
And every succeeding story in Genesis, right up until Abraham, are these ripples, the ripple effects of sin and death in the world as human beings try to live into that reality that we can define ourselves, that we can do it ourselves, we can create utopia by ourselves. And the solutions that we keep trying to come up with fall short and kind of perpetuate this march away from Eden and away from God himself. And so we find that we too live in the ripple effects of the fall. That we too find ourselves stuck in this cycle of sin and violence and death. So maybe it's not too much of a stretch to say that sin and death enslave us. They define us. I believe that we're all running from death. How much time have you spent on this planet actively not dying? Right? Most of you have done a pretty good job. You're here. I think most of you have your fingers and toes. You've done a pretty decent job at not dying. But if we spend so much of our energy trying to avoid death, whether it's actively trying to avoid it, we have this protectionist mindset and we hoard all of our space and our time and our resources so we don't have to go out there into the big scary world. But we're also afraid of death in the big sense, that we try to pretend like we're immortal, that somehow we can push it off to the other side and maybe we're gonna be the generation that's gonna figure out how we can live forever. And there's a lot of research about why celebrity deaths affect us the way that they do. You know, whenever there's, I remember uh, being a little kid when Princess Diana uh, was in a tragic car accident and died, and, and um, I remember my, my, my parents and some of their friends that were from England gathering together and watching this on television. It was like the biggest television event in history. People all over the world dramatically affected, and you'd watch people weeping in the streets, like in, in England and in India and Africa, all over the place, people just weeping at the loss of this woman. And on one level, it seems very strange how many of us even knew her, but we felt like we did. And there's all of these different theories as to why celebrity deaths affect us tremendously. Maybe you're even thinking of some deaths that you've witnessed and you, there's this strange feeling like, I never knew this person, I never knew that musician or that politician or whatever it is, but I, I'm feeling this a lot deeper than I perhaps should. And I, I think one of the most compelling theories for why celebrity deaths affect us is because it forces us to contend with our own mortality. Because we've projected onto somebody else, this is the highest calling for a human being. And when they succumb to death, it challenges us to recognize that we too are mortal, that we have failures, that we have shortcomings, and that we're not exempt from death. But we're not only running from the capital D death at the end of our lives. I think we're also running all the time from the little deaths that we face every day. And I would call these anxiety and despair that perhaps they aren't a bodily death, but they are an existential death. What is anxiety? Anxiety is literally the fear of nothing. Anxiety is the fear that tomorrow's not going to come. So when we have anxiety, you know, fear is like if a bear walked into this room right now, and we all have, you know, that's a pretty reasonable thing to be afraid of, and we need to exit quickly. Tali, do we have a um, contingency plan for that, bear attacks? Okay, great. <laughs> That's a very reasonable fear if there's a bear. But an unreasonable fear would be for us to sit here being afraid of a bear and we're already in the city. You know what I mean? Like we're afraid of a thing that isn't, isn't like potentially possible. 
So anxiety is this fear of nothing, the ultimate anxiety being the fear of death. And so many of us, our anxiety is raised when we're put in a situation where we may actually face death. Maybe you're getting on an airplane or you're driving on the highway for the first time, but there's, your life is actually potentially uh, in danger. And that anxiety rises up in you within, with the anticipation of what's about to come. But anxiety is the fear of nothing. And so if anxiety is being afraid that tomorrow won't come, despair is kind of the ugly twin. Despair says, I'm afraid tomorrow's gonna be just like today. Despair is, I'm afraid tomorrow is gonna be just like today. It's all going to be the same. Nothing changes, nothing moves forward. And so despair is kind of this living death, this stasis that we can find ourselves in where we've given up any sense of hope that things could change, that we could grow, that we could escape our cycles of sin and death that we live in every day. So anxiety and despair are the two sides of this existential death that we live in every day, and we do our best to try to avoid them, to pretend like they're not there, to keep them just below the surface that if we don't have to articulate them, maybe we don't have to face them. And yet they they dictate our lives every single day. Anxiety and despair determine how we choose to be in the world every single day. Because I think you and I come to this gross realization that we can't combat those things on our own. We can't change those things within our own flesh. We feel like these crises of existential death and real death are insurmountable. And perhaps like Paul in Romans 7, he cries out in this moment of utter confusion and he says, Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Because I'm doing all these things that I know I'm not supposed to do, and all the things I know I'm supposed to do, I can't do those. And I feel stuck. I feel stuck in my body. I feel stuck in my brain. I feel stuck in my heart. And I don't know where to go. And he cries out, who will rescue me? And of course, he gives us the answer, and that answer is in Jesus. This is something that we've been looking at the past several weeks, that Jesus gives us victory over every kind of death in our lives. Jesus gives us victory over these little existential deaths that we experience every day when we feel that pang of anxiety or panic or despair. But he also gives us victory over the capital D death that is to meet us at the end of our lives. The more that I delve into the center of our faith, this idea of of Christ and him crucified, the more I am convinced that the best language that we have for what God does there is Christ victorious. That the cross is less about God needing some sort of sacrifice in order to appease his sense of superiority. And it's more about God himself coming, breaking himself open giving himself over to death because he would rather suffer death in order to free us than to contribute to those cycles of hatred and violence and sin that keep us enslaved. And what we find is that God offers us two things on the cross, forgiveness and resurrection. Forgiveness and resurrection. And these two things align so beautifully with sin and death that through the cross, through the sacrifice of Jesus, God offers us forgiveness from our sin. And what does this mean? Forgiveness is the the hope that the story can progress, that we can continue to move forward. Because what happens to us is sin holds us back. It holds us in a moment that we feel like we can't move any farther forward. The thing that we've done, that's it. We've screwed the pooch. We're done. 
Story's over. We can't move from this place. And that's what sin does to us. It holds us back. We enter into this living death. But God's sacrifice on the cross says, no, I'm going to offer you forgiveness. I'm going to say the story hasn't been written yet. It's not over. There's, I have still more to say here. I have more to do here than even you know what it is. And so the forgiveness that we're given on the cross gives us permission for the story to keep going now. And as we continue to move in the life that God affords us, we begin to practice resurrection. We begin to recognize the places in our lives where God begins to breathe new life, where he breathes new hope. How many of you have, (laughs) this is ridiculous, I haven't used this in like three years. There was this interview with Lil Wayne (laughs) <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't know that's where I was going with this, right? So some of you might remember a couple of years ago, he was in prison for like a year for who knows what. And there was this interview with him, and he said, yeah, I read the whole Bible in this year while I've been in prison, because he didn't have much else to do. And he goes, it's really cool. I liked it. I liked how a dude would be this way, and then he'd meet Jesus, and now he's that way. And I was like, that's it. That's pretty much the whole Bible is summed up by Lil Wayne. You know, that's amazing that he saw that. Because how many of you, that's your story? You were like this, and then you met Jesus, and something happened, and now you're like this. You know? Maybe it's like an affliction of your your mind or your heart or your body. There was something, you were stuck. You felt like you couldn't grow, that you hit a wall. And then you met Jesus, and he started to do something within you. He offered you forgiveness. He began to practice resurrection, and now you've been changed. And this is why we give testimony to one another, you see, because we're telling these stories of resurrection to say, I was here, but now I'm here, and that gives me the hope to see me go there and to see you do the same. And it's through those testimony, it's through the blood of the lamb that the story continues to progress for each one of us. And it's the forgiveness to keep going now and the promise of resurrection later. There was a, um, a, a pagan historian in the first century in the Roman Empire, his name was Gaius, and he was writing about this very strange sect of Judaism that had arisen, and it kind of had gathered around this very odd rabbi from northern Judea. And Gaius only made two notes about this very strange Jewish sect called the Way, later known as Christianity. And he said, number one, they are adamant about sexual purity. And number two, they are adamant about this thing called the bodily resurrection. And a little aside, I wonder if the 21st century church was actually adamant about those two things being integral to our faith, how different we would look to the rest of the world. But it's so interesting, through pagan eyes, these were the two things that he looked at and said, huh, that's a little different. There's something else going on there. And in the first century, for the the earliest Christians, the belief in a literal bodily resurrection in the last days, was so incredibly important to them, and it channeled into how they chose to live in the moment. And so much of what we understand about the resurrection comes out of this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to begin in the 50th verse. This is Paul making the case of why it's so important that we believe in a bodily resurrection and not just uh, in a spiritual one. He says this, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I'll tell you a mystery. And I love this. This is one of those moments when Paul gets really poetic. He's almost kind of getting excited with the vision that the Lord's probably giving him. He says, we will not all sleep, 
But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And that comes from the prophet Isaiah. And he continues on, he uses from Hosea, he says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And if you're familiar with that passage from Hosea, he just tweaks the language slightly to be able to to make it work in his argument, which I love. We're going to talk about that in the fall, how Paul approaches scripture. But he continues on, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15 is death is no longer the end. This is why we're afraid of death. This is why we have anxiety, because we think when we die, that's it. We're done. It's over. There's no more story to be written. And it's this fear, this hopeless fear that there's going to be nothing on the other side of death. But Paul uncovers this amazing mystery at the center of what it is that God has done on the cross, that death is not the end anymore. The story has not been finished, but there's something on the other side of that. And that's why he takes this language from Hosea and he says, death, where's your sting? Because you're going to die. How many of you, raise your hand if you know that. Raise your hand if you're comfortable with that. You're gonna die, newsflash. You're going to die. But the sting, sorry Maddox, I mean you're not going to die, you're going to live forever. But the sting, we're going to have to put him in therapy, (laughs) sorry. The sting, the consequence of death has been ripped out. That the story is going to continue to move forward even after death. The eternal separation, the way that we define death in Christianity, is no longer going to be present. It's been removed. And in doing so, we recognize that when that sting has been removed from death, it tremendously affects the way that we live in the here and now. Paul goes on, he says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because Paul did not believe in this idea of eternity is somewhere else, and we say a prayer, and then we bide our time for 60 years, and then we'll go off to heaven when we die. But Paul believes that because Christ has conquered sin and death, that it changes the way that we live in the here and now. That we begin to practice lives of forgiveness. We practice resurrection in everything that we are, and we increasingly see that become the material reality of the lives that we profess to live. And what happens in that process is that God's Holy Spirit working in us, transforming us, corrects the sin of idolatry and injustice. He corrects our idolatry because he brings us back into pure relationship with God so that we can worship him. And as we worship God, we're formed a little bit more and we begin to see the world the way that God does in worship. And then we move from being people of injustice to being people of justice. Because when you and I begin to see human beings the way that God does, God begins to use us to rescue and redeem and restore them and to bring them to resurrection life. And so idolatry and injustice are corrected through worship and proper justice. And so Jesus, 
becomes the inauguration of God's rescue project for the world that we call the kingdom. Jesus becomes the foretaste that Jesus was bodily resurrected. I'm reading this really wonderful book about heresy right now. And he's talking about in the first century, there was so many ideas about who Jesus was and what was going on. And maybe he was just like a ghost that actually hovered three inches above the ground. And he wasn't really a body because that's not a thing. And they were adamant in the early church. They said, no, no, no. Jesus was literally resurrected into a new body. And that's the destiny for all of us. That's what's going to happen to all of us in the end, that Jesus is this foretaste, this first fruit of what's in store for all of us. And this should give us tremendous hope. This gives us so much hope that we've been offered forgiveness in the here and now that offers us this taste of resurrection later. And that future hope gives us confidence for how we live in this moment. Have you ever been in that place of anxiety or despair that place of death where you needed to hear the voice of Jesus say, this isn't over. It's not over yet. I'm not finished. Because in our own lives, in our own hearts and minds, we kind of cower into that place where we feel like the story's already been written. A very dear friend of mine is going through an absolute tragedy in his life that has kind of shaken his entire community. And I was able to go out there last weekend and minister to him and some of the people in that community and kind of process with them. And there was so much incredible pain built up over these years of, of, of lying and deceit that had kind of come out all at once, that there was these questions about marriages in this church. There was these questions about whether or not the community has the, has the fortitude to stay together, that maybe it's all going to fall part in this moment. And immediately what I felt like the Lord was saying is, this is the moment where you say what you believe actually is tested as true or not. It's the moments of tragedy in our lives. It's the moments of death in our lives where we say, do we really believe that Jesus is who he says he is? And do we really believe that Jesus is going to do what he said he's going to do? Or do we believe that maybe it's just too hard and this is it and this is all there is and the best that we can do is kind of bide our time until we face the end. And again, we enter in to that sort of living death. But to hear the voice of Christ say, behold, behold, I'm making all things new. I'm not done yet. There's still more to go. There's still more to heal and to redeem and to restore. That's what we find in a life of forgiveness and resurrection. And so how do we receive that kind of redeemed life from God in a world, in a personal world or a global world that seems so overcome and jeopardized by sin and death? I believe that we are called to practice death and resurrection through sacrament. I love that our faith is a death and resurrection faith. I love that Christianity is a death and resurrection religion because there's a lot of philosophies and religions and faiths out there that are only one of those things. There's a lot of philosophies and religions out there that are just death philosophies and religions. Say, this is all there is and just deal with it. It's never going to change, it's hopeless. And there's a lot of philosophies and religions out there that are just resurrection. No, 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 don't focus on the pain, don't focus on the suffering, escape it. Find the, the way to distract yourself. Find the way to transcend this thing so you don't have to deal with it. But what we find in Christ and him crucified is that we are a death and resurrection faith. And so we get to practice that through sacrament, which is a fancy church word for sacred acts. 
that Jesus himself has given us these symbols that we are to practice right now that lead us into the awareness of death and then resurrection. And when I use the term symbol, I don't mean that a symbol is a replacement for reality. I mean that a symbol is something that Jesus has given us where we create this sacred space, we enter into it, and somehow we're transformed. That the symbol points to the thing beyond the thing. The symbol gives us language and gives us a path forward to be able to encounter God and thereby be transformed by him because we're participating in it. And the symbols that Jesus has given us in baptism and in the Eucharist are so wonderful. They're so beautiful and so central to our faith because the reminders to us that our faith is something that we have been gifted. Our faith is something that we have received. Our faith is not something that we have manufactured that our faith is not something that we have to create and muster on our own. And see, we think that so often we have to create it. We have to muster it up. We have to come up with the five-step program and then implement it and check back with Jesus in 30 days and see if we've done it right. But when Jesus gives us the symbol of baptism, when he gives us the symbol of the Eucharist, he's saying, these are things I just want you to receive. I just want you to take them into your heart. Just, Just take it from my hands. And allow that encounter to change you and to transform you. You don't have to muster something up. You don't have to do something. You have to receive something. And both of these symbols are this practice of death and resurrection that we recognize every time we come to the table, every time someone is baptized, we are dying through Christ so that we can live through him. And so first I want us to talk about the Eucharist, which is a fancy word that means thanksgiving. We're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're just going to go back a few chapters. And Paul is correcting a misunderstanding about the Lord's table that he's found in this community. He says this, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that last line is so strange. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. It feels morbid. It makes us kind of feel uncomfortable because we don't like talking about death because, again, we spend a tremendous amount of time trying to avoid it. But it's important for us to recognize in Paul's theology, whenever we see the Lord's death, we need to see the victory of God on display because that's what Jesus' death meant that God wasn't going to play according to our rules of violence just increasing the sense of death and trying to control the world around us, but God choosing to pass through death, to give himself over to death, God willing to lose the battle so that he could win the war, the nonviolence of God on display on the cross that gives us victory over sin and death. The death of Jesus is actually the victory of God. And this is the uniqueness of our faith, that God doesn't help us to escape pain and suffering in our lives, as much as sometimes we want him to. God does, he's not a transcendent God. He didn't just grab us by the ear and zap us off somewhere else so we don't have to face the realities of a broken world. 
But we have something better. We have a God who's willing to co-suffer with us. We have a God who is willing to pass through the flames next to us. We have a God who is willing to feel everything that we feel, to participate in everything that we participate, to take us by the hand, to walk us right through the middle of death, and then we come out on the other side and we are the ones that have been changed because now we begin to look more like him because instead of it being a fire that burns us up, it refines us. It burns away the impurities in us, and we begin to reflect the image of God to other people in other broken situations in the world. So I want to invite you to stand with me, and we're going to get ready to approach the Eucharist, the Lord's table. The question that it always begs us when we come to the table is what actually needs to die within us? Where in your life right now is there a sin? Is there a little death? Is there something that has prevented your story from moving forward? And can you just leave that at the table to almost make an exchange, to leave that thing sitting on the table that when you take up the body and the blood of Jesus, the bread and the juice, and you take it into your body, you're the one that's being transformed and changed there. In this community that I'm uh, very dear to, um, as they're going through this tragedy, I was talking to my friend Nick, who's one of the leaders in that church. And on Sunday morning, you know, every Sunday they finish by taking the Eucharist together. And he was standing there and he's getting ready to serve the bread and the juice. And he's watching the faces of his community, of his loved ones coming down the aisle. And he just broke down with these big questions. What's going to happen to us? What's, what's next? Where are we going? What's going to happen? And it was all of these people in his community literally reaching across the table, hugging him, looking him in the eye and saying, we're going to be okay. What do you need from me? What, What can I be for you in this moment? And I said to Nick, Nick, isn't it amazing that for 2,000 years, the family of God has been coming around this same table in the highest of moments in our lives and the lowest, and the table never changes. On Monday, we celebrated the wedding of Mark and Shannon, and the first thing they did as a couple was to come together around the table in celebration. In triumph and tragedy, we come to that table, and we're continually refined and transformed by God as we receive the victory of Jesus, and we're brought to new life. But what needs to die within us? What needs to die within you? I'm going to pray And then together we're going to go back to that table and there's two sections there and I'd also invite you in that moment to be able to give financially so we can continue to support what we're doing together. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you and we bless you for the symbols that we're about to participate in. Lord, that these are things that we receive. They're not things that we manufacture. It doesn't invite from us a performance. It just invites us to participate. Lord, that forgiveness is a gift that you give us. Resurrection is a gift that we receive. New life is a gift that we step into. But we have to let go of something. We have to leave something there in order to be able to have the space to receive it, to allow you to breathe on us new life. 
And so, Father, as we come to your table, we pray that you would sanctify these holy gifts, this bread and this juice, that they would become for us the body and the blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. That as we take them into our bodies, that we would be transformed, that we would receive forgiveness anew so the story can continue to move forward, and that we would see these little tastes of resurrection in our lives as we await the final bodily resurrection when we will be fully in your kingdom with you, that there will be no more sin, there will be no more death, there will be no more suffering. And that's the hope to which we've been called. So Lord, we give you permission to move in and through this moment, be to us however we need to receive you. We pray these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, if you are one of the candidates for baptism and rededication, I invite you to go and get changed now. And if there's anybody else here and you feel that burning within you that you need to make that commitment to be baptized, or maybe it's been a while and you want to rededicate yourself to Christ, I wanna invite you to go back to this second room here and there's some extra change of clothes and go ahead and get those. You can go to the bathrooms and change. And when we come back from the table, we're gonna celebrate that next sacred act to which uh, God has called us. Other than that, I invite you all to go back to the table now.